If you would, please open up with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. I believe in the Pew Bible, uh, on or near page 795. While you're opening up there, uh, this is an integral moment in our sermon series, okay? Uh, Remember the series that we're in, Homecoming and Heart Checks, Serving God in the Present. Now, the first big uh, hurdle that we had was the, the letter, the book of Haggai, right? We saw he was preaching and sharing a message of the need to get God's temple built, okay? Then we transferred over to his contemporary Zechariah, all right? These two guys are at the same time. They're ministering to the same people, uh, and as they are proclaiming, Zechariah's message in chapters 1 through 6 has been, how shall we say it? Different. (laughs) If you've been with us at all, uh, you'll know that he's had a series of night visions. And these visions have ranged from horses all the way to flying scrolls to a woman in a basket. Stork-winged angels flying with that basket, right? If y'all recall, all of these different visions, that, as we have looked at it, has not been so complicated. Actually, uh, with the the full reality that every single one of those is revealing God's powerful work on behalf of his people, which which brings us all the way back at at this integral moment, this final night vision to that homecoming moment, that heart check moment, because the people of God are back. They're back home. But home isn't like what it once was. And their hearts, their hearts need a serious check because they have gone after the wrong things. They have looked not unto the Lord, but unto themselves. And they have found themselves wanting. And so in hope, they are looking to see and yet also perhaps with a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of doubt. All of those things wrapped up into this, uh, this, the souls of these people that Zechariah is now writing this letter of all of these visions that God has given them to do what? To encourage them. Because this homecoming and this heart check is God's call and plea to remind them to serve him in the present, in the moment. Don't think past. Don't think future. Think in the moment. Serve me now. Be my people now. That time will come. That time has passed. You are right here. And that is what we see this morning with this final night vision. You'll see it in some very unique ways. Our main point is this. God's justice and mercy combine into salvation for his people. And that is very good news. Let's pray. We'll read the chapter together. O Heavenly Father, Lord, bless the reading of your word. Bless the proclamation of it. Lord, we would ask boldly and yet also humbly that you would change us through this, your word, that means by which you work. Please, God, work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Zechariah chapter 6. We'll start with verse 1. Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots 
came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, and the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white one goes after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobiah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver, and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobiah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. The grass, it withers. The flowers, they do fade, but the word of God remains forever. Thanks be to God for such a reality that we can hold walking into heaven. We can hold our word as we go in, our God's word. Okay, uh, our main point, God's justice and mercy combine into salvation for his people. We'll see that with two points. It might be pretty obvious. God's justice and God's mercy, okay? Uh, we see that in our text this morning, pretty, uh, uh, what I hope will be very obviously as we march through it. So first, God's justice is put on full display in verses 1 through 8. Now, we have actually been here before. Uh, not Zechariah 6, actually Zechariah 1, but in Zechariah's last recorded night vision, we return to the very first one with key words. The key words, as I know y'all remember, because you of course know that first night vision, right? Horses and rest. Those are the two words that come up again, and it's like a sandwich. Uh, we see it in the first night vision, and we see it in the last one. Horses and rest. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 8. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, 
and white horses. Zechariah 1.11, there were the horses, here's the rest. And they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the whole earth, uh, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. The key words, horses and rest, are now used a little differently in chapter 6 because what Zechariah has seen through the course of these night visions, because remember, this is happening all in one night, okay? We, we get a little thrown, right, because we've been weeks coming through this. This is Zechariah's Sunday night, okay? And he's waking up and he's falling asleep and the angel is knocking on him say, hey, Zechariah, what do you see? And he's like, I, you know, I, I see a, a flying scroll. What is this? And, you know, the angel reveals and he drifts up, boom, you know, and he's getting hit by this and now he's revealing it to us. And so over the course of this, uh, we see some very important moments of God's working and fulfilling what he is doing because remember, God's people coming home from Babylon was a big deal. God promised that. He said that you would be in exile for a certain amount of time and I'm going to bring you home. And he did, but, but there's more to do. And he had promised that before and now he's revealing it with a fullness through Haggai and now Zechariah and later to come Malachi. And he would show them just what the people of God needed to be waiting for. So in chapter 1, when we see the word rest, it's a negative connotation, all right? It's the beginning of the work, right? And if you recall, the world being at rest is kind of like um, the people coming home and they have nothing. No money, no prestige, no goods, nothing. They're home, right? They made it home, so they have home and they have the Lord, but there's nothing to their names. And the world, though, is dancing a jig. Babylon, they're still doing their thing. What in the world? They've got all the money. They've got all the goods. They've got all the power. What are we going to do? Right? That's in chapter 1. The world is at rest. It, it had a negative connotation. It wasn't good. And, and if y'all want to go back to that sermon, you can find it on our YouTube page or wherever. But you'll see that. It, it was just not okay. The Lord spoke to that, actually, and reminded them that, that their rest time was soon to be over, if you recall. But, uh, not only was there this uh, rest with a negative connotation, there were also those horses in chapter 1. But they were just doing one thing. They were scouting. In other words, moving about, observing, and reporting. In other words, hey Lord, we came back. The world is at rest. Right? That's what they reported. That's what we saw in Zechariah 1 verse 11. But things have now changed. Multiple visions have been recorded. God's word has gone forward. God's work has begun to mold and shape the people. And, and as we see all of these things playing out, God's work of salvation and restoration is now being fulfilled in chapter 6's vision. And we see that because now the horses of the chapter 1, the horses in chapter 6 are no longer patrolling only, but they're going out in power. Verse 1, maybe you missed it, but as an Old Testament nerd, whenever you see the word chariot, you need to know that something big is going on, okay? Uh, replace chariot with tank. All right, kind of like, oh, 
Here come the tanks. If, if tanks are rolling through downtown Columbia, you know something is wrong, okay? That's the point, right? You're thinking, oh no, what? I mean, what is this, right? It's the same thing with a chariot, okay? Again, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. By the way, those two mountains were bronze. Um, not only are these chariots, these, as we want to think about it, kind of war machines going out, but they're coming out from these mountains of bronze. And, and again, remember, Zechariah, it's like a pop-up book, okay, for children. So when, when you pop open the book, what do you see? A picture rise up right? And if y'all, as I know you are, but I'll remind you, uh, if you hear two of bronze ever, right? And you're looking at this, uh, in the temple, there were two giant pillars of bronze that you couldn't miss when you walked into the temple. It was, this is Solomon's temple, and these things were giant, huge pillars of bronze, pure bronze. And you look at me and say, wow, those look like mountains of bronze, right? And so not only are these chariots coming uh, into the world to do action, right? That's what chariots do. They're, they're, you didn't send a chariot to go deliver a message, right? Uh, you, you send out chariots to do war, okay? And so not only are these chariots going out, but they're going out from the very presence of God. It would be as if they were ushering forth from the temple itself. A very powerful image that we can see with the pop-up with just a little bit of Bible knowledge that I hope y'all now have and can remember. From God's presence are these four chariots going forth. And what are they doing? How are they going forth and why? Verse 3, they're strong. Verse 5, they are in the counsel of God. Verse 7, they are chomping at the bit literally. And then verse 8, we see why. Who is now at rest because of the chariot's work? Verse 8 of chapter 6. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have not set the world at rest. Who? Have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Now, instead of the earth being at rest in a negative way with a pejorative connotation. What we see is God's spirit at rest which carries with it an ultimately positive connotation. God's justice has gone out with the purpose of salvation and restoration for his people. For a people who are hearing this from Zechariah, okay? They're listening to Zechariah and they're thinking to themselves sort of like a uh, um, what I was mentioning earlier. Okay, Zechariah, you're saying you're a prophet. You're saying that things are going to get better. Have you looked around? I mean, where have you been? I'm not seeing this stuff. This is a word of hope to a people in need of hope. And that, I think, translates very well, not only to our congregation, but to our people uh, in this time, in this age. Hope 
is a precious commodity that the world can never find and take hold of. And we have it here, a word of hope that the Lord is going out in justice with these chariots to put his spirit at rest. In other words, there is no longer anything unsettling to him. And if God is perfect and if God is just, if he looks upon all the sins of the people and they have been taken care of, it means that there no longer is sin. And so this message of hope then reveals that God has condemned and judged all of those wicked and evil acts that brought the people of God out of Jerusalem to begin with. And if you recall, that was a terrible and heinous time for the people of God. Blood, death, starvation, humiliation, sin, idolatry. Across the board, it was a brutal time. And so they see this. And they can rest too. A powerful message of God's justice. But we must be well aware that as God goes out in power, there is uh, this reality of judgment which should leave us wondering, uh-oh, <laughs> am I going to be judged? Right? Uh, what, what do we do now? I'm pretty sure I haven't been doing the right things. But, but the message isn't over. What we see is God's mercy shown as well in verses 9 through 15. God is merciful. And, and if you're wondering, well, what does mercy mean? You know, what's an easy definition of mercy? It means that God does not exact justice or enact punishment as we deserve it. Okay? So, um, a cop is merciful when you're speeding. I'm looking at you, Brady. All right? When he's speeding, right? And you pull somebody over and say, I, I'm going to be good to you today. All right? I'm not going to give you the ticket. That is mercy. He didn't exact the, the punishment that you deserve. You deserve a ticket, right? But there, there, is, uh, there is mercy that is being revealed, right? And, and that's an easy and silly illustration. But when you zoom that out, it gets very serious very fast. And we start to realize that God's mercy is so huge and it's almost borderline incomprehensible when we start to try to put his justice alongside his mercy. It should be like magnets, right? You ever tried to put magnets with the same pole? It won't go, right? And if you get it, pew, shoots off. Fun science experiment. Scary truth, though. Judgment and mercy. What do we do? How do those things combine? If God is perfectly just, can he be perfectly merciful? If God is perfectly merciful, can he be just? And depending on which way we fall, we lose hope if God is not perfectly just. For that means wicked and evil will prevail. We lose it. It's over. If we lose mercy, then we are judged. <laughs> and it is over. Or is it? We see something unique happen because God's justice and mercy combine into something unexpected, into salvation for his people. Verses 12 and 13 get us there by showing us both the means of mercy and the power of mercy. Our confession of faith today, as I mentioned, was very important. Short of catechism, question and answers, 25 and 26. They 
perfectly sum up what it is that we see in verses 12 and 13, which is the means of mercy, the power of mercy, and just how mercy jives with justice in God, which put simply is seen perfectly in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 12, right? Because Jesus himself is the branch, capital B. This is a prophesied name, a personal name as it were. Here comes branch, right? The nickname right here. Oh, there's branch. If you call me branch, it's going to be weird. But Jesus is revealing something from that. And we actually saw that in Zechariah. You see it in Isaiah. You see it in Ezekiel. You see it all throughout the Old Testament flowing in to the New Testament. And even Jesus himself talks about his father as the vine dresser and himself as the vine, right? A branch, if you will, and that we too are united into such things as it shoots off of his work. But so we see this reality of Jesus in verse 12. And, and in Jesus then, as we follow verses 12 and 13, we see something unique, a combination of the priestly office and the kingly office, which is exactly what we see with Joshua, the high priest being crowned as king. This is very helpful for us as we think about the good news of Jesus, because as we think about the roles of the priest and the roles of the king, and by the way, if you're thinking, what are the roles of the priest and what are the roles of the king? If you just flip back in your bulletin and you see our confession of faith, how does he do the office of a priest? How does he do the office of a king? That's what the catechism is good for, by the way. It answers questions that we have, right? And so if you wanted to kind of have that as you're looking at this, well, we see this high priest and we see this king and we see this high priest being crowned as king. So now we have a combination of these truths, these truths we see very nicely summarized in these two catechism questions, and now it plays itself out in the gospel itself. Follow along with me, as it were, and I'll show you. Jesus' life is lived in perfect and total humility, okay? Uh, Jesus is God, and he puts on flesh. He takes on himself humanity. And now he doesn't count uh, uh, his equality with God, that is his God nature, a thing to be grasped. He opens his hand. And so now in humility, what we might call humiliation for God, in humility, Jesus is a baby who needs milk from his mother. We're talking about God, okay? This is God we're talking about who needs, all right, we should stop there, but we can keep going, milk from his mother. The absurdity level should rise unless it was God himself revealing this, which it is from his word. And so Jesus, in total humility, lives this perfect life in total perfection, which creates for us a perfect sacrifice to be offered up in payment for our lives, okay? That's the first part of the gospel, if we're looking at the meat of it. Okay, but there's a next part as we're thinking about Jesus as priest because Jesus's death is of his own choosing. Now, this is very important because at any time in Jesus's life, and he says this, he could have called down a legion of angels to save him, to wipe out those that were humiliating him and that were spitting on him and that were beating him and that were going to kill him. But he didn't. 
because his death was of his own choosing. Jesus himself carried the sacrifice of himself to the cross, to the altar of God, to make payment for his people, to quote the catechism, to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God because that's the great exchange, right? Jesus' perfect sacrifice, the perfection we can't have, Jesus says, I'll die for you. And so now God's wrath, that is that which we deserve, gets put onto Jesus and Jesus says, here is my perfection. Now when God looks at you, he's going to see me. That's union with Christ, okay? And so now we see this great exchange of righteousness and sinfulness. That is Jesus as priest doing his priestly thing for us, okay? But there is more. There is more to the gospel than just the death on the cross or the leading up to the death. Jesus' life and death, they reveal the means of mercy and how mercy jives with justice because God meets out all the justice and he gives all the mercy and it happens all through the person and work of Jesus. But can you believe it? The good news has even more to it. And we see that because death couldn't hold Jesus, could it? The resurrection happened three days later. That is sometimes where we stop. But there is so much built into that. And this is, the, this is not only the means of mercy now. That is, what, how does this stuff work? This is the power of mercy that now bears itself out. Because as Jesus rises from the grave, a couple things happen. First, our number one enemy, death. Not Satan, by the way. Death. Death dies. Okay? It's over. We win. Game over. Confessing the Lord Jesus, we live forever. Wow. We should pause there for a moment. And if you don't, you should pause. That's a big deal. But he does more. Because then he ascends into heaven and the disciples say, wait, Jesus, I don't know about this. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Remember, I am going to, as king, send you someone who is even more powerful in your life than me standing here. I'm going to send you God the Holy Spirit, and he is going to dwell within you. And he's going to bring to life all the truths that I have been sharing with you. And he is going to set the stage moving forward for the church and for, for this communion and for this fellowship which we have been dreaming about but is now being actualized. And it's going to happen soon. Believe me. And so we see the Holy Spirit come in power. And he's going to lead, guide, and direct. He's going to sustain, keep, and preserve. He's going to empower, embolden, and encourage. And he's going to work in the hearts of all who are God's and bring them home to eternal salvation. In other words, to use our text, eternal rest. His spirit will be at rest at the end just as we will. And then, not only that, can you believe it? The good news is still going because as Jesus ascends, he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And as he sits, what does he do? He puts his foot up on his enemies like a footstool because he has conquered all of those who will be in our way. Not only that, 
He doesn't just lounge. He clasps the hands and prays for you and for me and for all who would believe. Forever making intercession on our behalf. The king priest ascended. Jesus fulfills it perfectly. And it is what we see in our text this morning. Verse 13, I think the best sum of what we've been saying. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of, here it is, peace shall be between them both. The priest king Jesus, he has fought for you. He has died for you. And now he is praying for you. That is the good news. There is so much there. There is so much more. But that in and of itself is very powerful. Now, let's quickly apply these wonderful truths of God's mercy and justice. And, and let's do that through verses 9, 10, and 11. And verses 14 and 15. You'll see what I mean when we get there. There are some exiles from Babylon who are apparently bringing gold and silver as an offering to God and the work of temple restoration. And there are a couple things worth noticing uh, about them as we finish out today. First, uh, their names change. Don't get nervous. No mistakes were made. Uh, this is something that happened a whole lot coming back from Babylon, say, hey, what's your name? I'm Jeremiah. And my Babylonian slave master's like, oh, no, no, you're not Jeremiah. Uh, you're, you're Jeriah. I'm like, what? What do you mean? No, I'm Jeremiah. He said, no, you're not Jeremiah. You're Jeriah now. He said, well, but like I am Jeremiah still, you know, and that, and so uh, in all likelihood, what happened is that as they are being recorded in, they're saying, no, no, I'm not this. I'm that, right? We are the people of God following after. You see this stuff happening all the time, uh, these name changes. You see it in Chronicles and Numbers. You also see it in the New Testament, most famous, right? Uh, Saul and Paul, right? Uh, same man uh, using a bit of a different uh, spelling of his name to have a different meaning. Okay, uh, so that's the first piece. That was an application just so nobody was worried if you're an astute reader and, and are looking at those things. But there are four applications that we can take away that are very important for us and I think, I think can really help us take this text and leave this place with it. First, they cared enough to go. Verse 10 of chapter 6. Take from the exiles, Hildai, Tobiah, and Jediah, who arrived from Babylon. These people cared enough to go. Uh, we should never neglect the reality that we care enough to do something. Okay? Uh, why are you at church this morning? It's because you cared enough to go. Uh, even if you grumble, right? Oh, man, you know, <laughs> I'm not feeling so good, right? My throat, ah. Uh, you know, my throat's kind of killing me. I have some, like, honey water or whatever. Ah, but you care enough to go, right? Uh, it's very interesting over the course of a Christian life. And you think, yeah, I, I don't know why. Just, I went, right? But, but the reality is, is that you cared enough to go. And the application is this. That the Holy Spirit works in his people and raises up within us and tears away that sin, if necessary, and gets us where we need to be. He does that. And we can praise God for that. And we can pray to God for more of that. 
Number two, not only did they care enough to go, they cared enough to give. Verse 11, take from them silver and gold. Uh, so they are bringing with them, like Paul, coming from these other churches towards Mother Jerusalem, all of this offering from the people. In all likelihood, it's not just their silver and gold. They are bringing from Babylon, from the diaspora, from the people of God, silver and gold. Not only do they care enough to go, they care enough to give. Will you give of yourself? And it's not just monetary. It's not just time. It's not just skill. It is an open heart moment of will you give of yourself that which God has called you to? They cared enough to give. It's a very important reality for us today where we always put our money where our mouth is. Always. If you follow the money trail, you'll see what people are all about. It's easy to see, and you can see it not only in our lives, but in the people that are around us. You see it in the news. You see it everywhere. Universities, the bigger the institution, the easier the trail is. Ah, oh, right? It twists our gut when we think about it. But they cared enough to give unto the Lord. Number three, verse 14. They needed a reminder of their king and priest. Verse 14 of chapter 6. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. Why? As a reminder. As a reminder. Dear Christians, we need reminders. All throughout scripture, God has given us reminders because we are a forgetful people. God has given us clothes in the garden that we might remember not our nakedness, but God's covering. God gave Abraham a promise, all of the stars. God gave Abraham a sign of circumcision. God gave Noah a sign, a rainbow. God pointed over to the tree of life. God gave, gave David a throne. Don't you see? God gave Joshua stones. <laughs> Joshua gets stones, poor guy, right? Set these stones up, why? So when your kids ask about them, you can remember. That's all. Set up the stones so you remember to tell your kids about me. Stones to remind you. The people of God and the law, they had little frontlets of hair. And those frontlets had God's word on it. God's people of that time had God's word on the doorpost of their front door. To remind them that they might see. And so why is the crown on the people? Or why is the crown in the temple? It is for the people to remind them of Jesus. We must be reminded. It is why, one of the reasons why, God has allowed such a pattern of one in seven. We come and worship to remind ourselves of who God is. It is why God gives us so many blessings. It is why we speak of him in his word daily, in our hearts and outwardly. And if we aren't doing that, we will forget. Dear Christians, they needed a reminder, and you do too. Number four, this is where we'll finish. They, as well as the rest of God's people, are called to diligent obedience. Verse 15 of our text. If you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. How can you obey? Have you ever tried to obey when you can't? <laughs> you know what I mean? Obeying when you can is easy. Obeying when you can't, that's a different different topic. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? That sin that clings. 
that you can't get rid of. Or maybe it's something sillier. Uh, my children have a lot of silly disobedient uh, thrusts in their life, okay? Uh, it's silly now, but it reveals that reality. And God is calling us to something, but only by the grace of God can we go there. And so let us humble ourselves. Let us praise God all the more because we see a priest king on the throne who has done those things for us, who has given us his spirit, and because of that is now at rest. And therefore now we too, in hope, can rest with confidence in a God who is working for us, who will give us that obedience and will lead God and direct us as we move forward. That's the good news. That's the night visions of Zechariah. Can you believe it? Pretty applicable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you are so good. And you are so gracious. And the gospel is so profound. Uh, no philosopher and no, uh, no scientist, no mind, no intellectual could ever get to what this is. And then, Lord, you share it with us. And I won't speak for those that are with me, but I'll speak for me. Lord, I am no philosopher and I am no intellectual, but this stuff... This is big. And you give me my mind. The mind after you. The heart after you. The Holy Spirit in me to see it. And to believe it. And to hold to it. And that gives me hope and peace and joy and comfort and contentment. And God, I pray it. I pray it for all of us. That, that you, O Holy Spirit, will seize us and give us these things. Namely, your fruits. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.